morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Elizabeth Weiss, author of the debut novel, The Sisters Suite, about twin sisters navigating the world of vaudeville in the 1920s and 30s. Elizabeth, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thanks so much, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here. It seems to me this is a novel, first and foremost, about family. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little something about the four main characters that make up this, this core family at the, at the center of the novel and this act that they create together. Well, I guess the, the first thing to say about them is they're a show business family. So there are parents, Maude and Lenny, who have each had a career in show business, Lenny, um, as a kind of you know, behind the scenes and Maude on stage. and. Uh, that kind of came to an end and now they have these twin daughters and they've kind of fallen on hard times. And so uh, Josie and Harriet, the twins are pulled into the family business in the form of an act um, when they're about five years old. And after uh, they struggle for a while, the father Lenny has this idea that he will um, have them pose as conjoined twins to kind of have a, a maybe a better shot at getting some attention. And they do, they take off uh, in this fraudulent form. And um, the family spends many years, really a decade, um, kind of keeping this secret and achieving some success. And then when the girls are about 15, Josie, sort of the more ambitious and more talented sister, exposes that this is a fraud so that she can escape the family act and run off to Hollywood and become a star on her own. And we are left behind with Harriet, who sort of has to reimagine herself and her life um, without the act and the kind of relationship that has always defined her. And Harriet is, I would say, the central character in the novel. And you begin with a um, with a prologue in which um, a young journalist comes to interview Harriet about the death of her famous sister. Mm-hmm. Um, why did Why did you want to frame the story with this kind of retrospective um, viewpoint of Harriet as as an older woman looking back? Um, that's a good question. It, that's something that came very late in the writing process, and I think maybe it it answered a question about like, why was this moment, the one that the novel was describing? It's sort of this coming of age moment for Harriet, a moment in which she um, has to decide how she's going to live her life. And so um, I think for me that retrospective, uh, kind of positioning the narrative in that retrospective way, um, maybe helped me understand why Harriet was telling her own story and why or why this was the story she was telling about her life that this was this moment that's kind of crucial to her becoming the person she would become and um so I think for me it just sort of yeah framed framed the telling helped me understand why Harriet was telling this story in particular and not the story of some other moment in her life yeah yeah, yeah. um well, this is obviously a narrative that is that is steeped in in theater and vaudeville and and also cinema of the of the twenties and thirties in particular. Um, do, what's your what's your own background in the theater? What what did you bring to this from your own uh, theatrical days? Yeah, I did have theatrical days when I was young. I I 
think if I, you know, you'd ask me when I was five, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said an actress or a writer. And then for many years, I think I would have just said an actress, the writing thing kind of fell by the wayside. And I did theater as a kid, I was children's theater, and I was um, super involved in a community theater in the town where I grew up. And I really, I really thought that was it. I thought that was what I wanted um, to do. And I had a high school, my high school theater teacher, I remember very distinctly, once kind of pulling me aside and saying, she was a wonderfully blunt woman. And she said, Elizabeth, I think you should write. And at the time I, I was hurt because I like Mrs. Gamble knew full well that I wanted to be an actor. And this didn't seem like a, a supportive thing to say, but of course she was right. And uh, over the next couple of years, I think I, I figured out that um, my talents really lay elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I grew up kind of um, performing and just sort of loving being in the world of the theater. Um, so that whole like backstage experience, just the way it smells and the way the light is, there are all these kinds of um, sensory elements to the kind of backstage experience that I think those are really what linger with me now more than any particular moment of performance um, and just kind of backstage camaraderie and, and everything that kind of happens around the show. Um, so I, I, a lot of that kind of was present when I started working on the book. And then I grew, I grew up in little towns in the Midwest where, which is just, um, there's so many wonderful old vaudeville theaters that have been um, restored to various uses. And I grew up in um, a little town called Monmouth, Illinois. And the next town over was Galesburg, Illinois. And they had a wonderful old vaudeville theater there, um, the Orpheum in Galesburg. And I mean, it's been you know many, many years since I've been there, but just I, the the way that stage looked and felt, it all is still very alive to me. Um, so there was just, when I started, when I realized the book was set kind of in that era, um, I found I had a lot of these kind of childhood memories of these spaces that sort of came back and um, kind of were a, a launching point. Of course, I had to do a lot of research from there, but um, there were these elements that were sort of already deep in my memory that I could work with. It, it, it strikes me that, you know, theater, theater has this, this facade of make-believe that we accept. And to me, that's a particularly apt kind of setting for, for the background of a novel. Um, what, do you feel or why do you feel characters in the novel are particularly well revealed through their uh, relationship with, with the theater and the stage? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, maybe it's true that like in any family, everyone kind of has a role and is operating according to a, a script. Like, you know, whether it's, you know, like he's the responsible one and she's the irresponsible one and she's the smart one, you know, people kind of um, are slotted into um, a script within a family. And so for a family that, in a very explicit way is kind of um, thinking about performing roles. And in this family, they're performing these sort of false roles. There's this, they're keeping secrets and they're kind of presenting themselves in a public way that's untrue. Um, maybe it gets at these sort of um, properties of being in a family that are sort of true for everyone. Like we all sort of have to negotiate our way. Um, you know, we have kinds of, roles that we've received within a family and we sort of have to figure out how true they are and you know whether we want to grow up to be the person we've kind of always understood ourselves to be or if we have to kind of figure out a different path for ourselves and so I think in this family um, they're kind of on stage and off stage lives 
um, kind of create opportunities for just kind of a slipperiness between how they perform as performers and how they're performing within their real lives as members of this family. Um, so maybe it's kind of, yeah, getting at um, this question of identity that I think is really, really central to Harriet's journey. She's sort of figuring out who she is and how to be that person. And um, the theatrical upbringing she's had kind of definitely frames that, that idea of performance is really important. Yeah, it strikes me that the, this double act they create, this, this father creates this, as the children grow, this large, series of larger and larger harnesses to make mm -hmm. them look like, uh, like conjoined twins is, uh, you know, I found that a really nice metaphor for a lot of the relationships in the novel. They are, it's, it's fake, um, it's, they're trapped, it's a secret, and yet something good comes out of it. Um, mm -hmm. did, did, did you, did, which, what came first, this idea of the, of the act or, or, the, or the characters, and then you're like, okay, how can these characters be reflected in, in what the girls are doing? Yeah, it was it was um, kind of a weird path. So the, the very first thing that came to me, I don't know if you remember, like this was maybe in like 2009, there was this bizarre event where this like news event. So I was working in an office at the time and I just remember everyone in my office was gripped by this story that unfolded over the course of an afternoon where there was a family in Colorado that had a giant like weather balloon that they yeah. built and it was yeah. yeah it was like tethered in their backyard and it got loose and they couldn't find their six-year-old son and so for hours people thought this little boy had gone up with the balloon and there was this huge search all of these kind of I think like the national guard was called in all there was this huge kind of search and rescue operation and then after a number of hours this little boy appeared he'd been hiding in the attic and he came out and um, but then over the course of the next couple of days, the, the story began to fall apart a little bit. So they were on a news show and the person asked this little boy, why didn't you come when you heard people calling for you? And he said something that was like, my dad told me not to, or my dad said we were doing this for a show. And, you know, and like, the authorities sort of concluded that this had all been a hoax and the family wanted to get a reality TV show. And the parents were actually charged and convicted of some crimes. Um, and if you look, it's, it's actually complicated and kind of sorted and if you they've, they've since been pardoned it's a, a bigger mess than it even seemed at the time um but at the time I was just really captivated by this idea of parents who would use their child in this way parents who wanted fame and would be willing to kind of involve their child in a fraud in order to secure fame and so that was really the starting point was this kind of weird hoax from that was contemporary and then I from there, I, my imagination kind of led me to the idea of false, they were originally conjoined triplets and it was like the eighties and they were getting ready to go on the Phil Donahue show. And it was like a very different kind of story, which I quickly realized was not a plausible story. <laughs> and so I actually came to vaudeville after that. It was, it, vaudeville seemed like a world in which you could get away with a deception in a long-term way. And then I, you know, I scaled down and made the more reasonable choice to make them twins instead of triplets. And so, you know, it really started with that idea that what kind of family could this sort of problem occur in? And then the sisters sort of emerged, you know, once I thought of twins um, and I started writing about, really I was writing, it was very physical at the beginning. I was writing about like being inside the harness and that kind of physical experience of being constrained in that way. And then a family, you know, the family kind of formed around them. Um, yeah, and then the world of vaudeville around that. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that vaudeville is is actually the the perfect 
place for this novel because that that sort of coming together of of audiences suspending their disbelief and you know the craziness of these acts T talk a little bit about the if you can about the sort of crossover between the culture of the freak show and the culture of vaudeville and why this conjoined twins act would have been really successful in the time period that you're you're talking about yeah, it's true. Like vaudeville was such a hodgepodge and you could have like these really sort of elevated acts like people were doing Shakespeare and like operatic arias and, you know, that kind of alongside um, acts that were much, you know, the kind of freak acts or um, novelty acts, like really goofy things. Like they would have like a, a quick draw artist, like someone who just like do a character of someone on the stage or like baby impersonators were another one that just struck me as like absolutely bizarre and fascinating. So, I mean, if you think about it, this kind of like variety entertainment kind of had to bring in a single kind of evening or afternoon of performance, kind of the whole gamut. It's like you're flipping through the channels and you're getting um, this whole specter, spectrum of uh, kinds of entertainment. Um, so there was space in that world for, um, for this sort of, uh, for this sort of act and, um, you know, there, there were famously uh, Daisy and Violet Hilton who were conjoined twins who at one point in time were the highest paid act in vaudeville. And so, um, and they kind of um, had this interesting position of being like, obviously like they had this kind of physical anomaly that was a, a part of the attraction, but they were also very talented and um, had this kind of legitimate talent as um, like singers and, and they played many instruments. And so, vaudeville was kind of this space that held kind of both of those aspects of their performance like people would kind of you, know, you came to talk at you know these girls but also you know they they were talented performers and they were putting on a show and um so yeah it's such a strange um moment in kind of performance in theater history and it, it it's yeah, and a, a short-lived one, but at, you know, for, there's like this 50-year period from the late, like the 1880s through the 1930s or so. This book is really set at the end of the vaudeville era. So um, even if Josie hadn't blown up the act, I think Harriet observes at one point, you know, it probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have lasted much longer. The depression really um, kind of uh, cut vaudeville off at the knees. So it was this kind of moment right at the end of things anyway, um, with this very like a fascinating period in theater history that contains such a, a wide range of um, types of performance. And yeah, it's, it was really interesting to kind of dig into and um, explore some of these acts in, and in the research. Now you've, you've alluded to this a little bit already, but this the novel shows not only what goes on on stage, but this whole world backstage technical theater dance classes hotel rooms train tickets all this 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 whole culture that was part of vaudeville which involved you know moving acts from town to town and mm -hmm. and her josie and harriet's dad is a scenic artist and you know we get to see some of that happening tell us a little bit about how you researched that that part of the world the more the more sort of hidden part of um of the vaudeville world yeah, I, so there I was, uh, I attended grad school and then was teaching at the University of Iowa for much of the time I was working on the novel. And I remember they had a, in their special collections, they had some vaudeville materials that included things like, like it was like the, like a kind of manifest, uh, like 
kind of like budget type documents, uh, like all these sorts of like nitty gritty things, the sort of stuff that like the company manager might have, you know, had in, in his briefcase, the sort of um, the captured some of those like less, I mean, vaudeville glamorous isn't quite the right word, but the kind of less glittery on stage aspect of, of that life. And that really struck my imagination. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I remember at one point I talked to someone about like train travel in that period. It was a, a lot of just sort of collecting some of those sort of details about what the kind of material day-to-day -day reality of, of life, like what would it feel like to be in a boarding house? What would kind of the train schedule be? Sort of trying to pack those things into my brain so that I could then let go of the research and just work from my imagination. Um, and I think that was kind of throughout the process, not just in the, the vaudeville section of the book, but kind of writing in this historical setting generally. It was always a sort of give and take between research and imagination and trying to equip my imagination so that I could then kind of set it free and let it do as much of the work as, as possible. Um, I, re I remember I read many years ago an interview with A.S. Byatt about kind of writing historical fiction. And she said something that really struck me, which was that she avoided, when she was researching a particular historical period to write fiction set in, she would avoid fiction from that time because she didn't want to encounter someone else's imaginative reconstruction of the period. She wanted to be working from just like the dry details that she would find like histories and biographies, and then especially like primary sources. And that I really took to heart and tried, tried to just feed my brain with as many of those kinds of um, details and especially from primary sources as I could. So then the imaginative construction of the era would be my own. Um, just, yeah, does that make sense? Trying to just yep. free my imagination to do the work by kind of giving it enough fuel on the research side. So, so Josie and Harriet um, are not really conjoined twins. They're just pretending to be conjoined twins. Mm -hmm. They really are twins. Um, and, and like many um, sets of twins, they have their sort of own world of, of make-believe, their own superstitions, their own style of communication. What was it a, what's it about the special relationship between twins that made you wanted to put them at the center of this novel in that relationship? That's a good question. I mean, I think twins are fascinating to me. I am not a twin, but I have a sister who's close to my age and people would always mistake us as twins when we were younger. And I have a lot of twins in my family tree and I've just sort of always had twins on the brain. Um, so I think, um, you know, when I came to the idea of conjoined twins first through that idea of fraud and, you know, that the, the balloon boy story, and so that they were kind of there. And it was then that I started sort of deeply imagining what their lives might be like. Um, yeah, there is something fascinating about just the kind of intimacy that can exist. Most of us don't have that experience of, of intimacy with another person that is from the first moment of your life that is so um, consistent and intense. Um, and so I think because I am, as a writer, excited by the idea of character and relationships and, and psychology, thinking about the psychology of twins, especially these twins whose relationship is intensified in this really unhealthy way by their upbringing. Um, that was just fascinating to me. I just, it was a, a, an, a kind of um, 
yeah, fascinating exercise in, in thinking about how human beings form in relationship to one another and sort of how like intimacy and love um, can are sort of insufficient and can kind of curdle and like what happens when a relationship of such intense intimacy and, and, and genuine love, I do think the bond between these two is genuine, even though their relationship becomes so difficult and complex. Um, you know, what happens when that, you know, isn't enough to kind of, you know, counterbalance the, um, the ways in which the relationship isn't serving the two people in it. Um, so yeah, it was just sort of a fascinating thing to think about and um, getting, getting to know these sisters was a really fun part of the project. I think one thing that strikes me about, about reading novels at, at different points in my life, different points in time is something that you, you read a novel at one point in time and a certain passage might just be a passage. And then you read the same thing in, at a different point in history and that passage just jumps out at you. And yeah. for me in this novel, it's early in the novel, the family essentially has to go into lockdown because of a <laughs> pandemic, um, yeah. which, which if I had read this novel five years ago, I. You know, it would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have jumped out at me in the way in the way that it does now. Did what role, if any, did the pandemic that we're still living through play in in creating this novel? I had not written that passage until the pandemic, and it, like that was very late in the editorial process for the novel. I mean, it was it was mostly done, and I kind of like I was aware that the novel was set in this like these characters would have experienced the Spanish flu, yep, yep. but then as I was working on kind of you know, editing the novel. At this point, the book had been sold. I was working with my editors and it was, you know, we were kind of quite, quite close to the end of that process, but it became clear to me that I could not ignore that experience. You know, I was just looking around at um, children. I, I, at that point, I was pregnant. I had a daughter last October. So I, I was looking at friends' children who are, um, you know, that age, kind of four, five, six, and just, so clear to me that this was going to be a, a formative memory in their lives and I, I couldn't ignore it. And also, I mean, it affected the theater. So the theaters were shut down. And so for these characters, it, it was kind of right at the beginning. They were just kind of um, kind of getting some momentum in, in Harriet and Josie's career. Um, so it, it became clear that I had to address it. Um, but then it, this happens so often, I think, um, and maybe you've experienced this as well, where you'll have like a surprise in something you're writing or you'll be in a draft and think you're solving one problem and then you'll discover it, it opens up something else entirely. So that that section became for me an opportunity to write about, like write into Harriet's heart a little more deeply. And I sort of learned things about her and um, kind of the nature of her character and, and her kind of anxiety that this, I think, a, a, an important part of her character that I hadn't known until I wrote into that moment, or maybe I didn't, like the, it kind of clarified and crystallized some things I sort of understood about her, but it, it gave them kind of a more concrete presence in the novel that actually ended up feeling really important to me. Um, so yeah, that was a, a surprise uh, late in the process, for sure. So even, even as the twins are yoked into this harness, uh, and and you know dancing each of them is dancing one half of a, of a dance and they're just they're they're almost as one person we nonetheless begin to see their own separate identities begin to, mm -hmm. to unfold beyond simply half of a double act um tell us a little bit about about how you did that how did you uh as they grow how did you create 
um, really very separate and different people from from these not conjoined twins. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think it was clear to me. I understood about them from the very beginning that there would be a kind of this difference in their personalities. I, I knew from the, I, I worked on this novel for a very long time. It took me many, many years to finish it. And there are only a handful of things that I can really distinctly remember understanding, you know, 10 years ago whenever I started. And, and one of them was that one of the sisters was going to blow up this act and that we were going to stay with the other sister who kind of had to put the pieces back together afterward. Um, so that was one of the, the, the elements of the, the story and of the kind of family dynamic that was clear from the beginning that they would have these kind of very different personalities and different ways of relating to the act. And I think then it was just a process for me of over many, many years, um, like writing, I, I wrote through this material like again and again, and every time I would learn more about who these girls were and their experiences would become kind of clearer to me. Um, I just really got to know them. And then by the, by the end, like it, there was just kind of a, a truth to them that felt like very outside of me. Like I, I just, they, they had a kind of um, presence uh, that as I was doing, working in the very end, these kind of last stages of revision, like I just, and they, they had taken shape and these, these um, differences in, in who they were, were just kind of fundamental. And like, they were, they were just there. Um, so, so yeah, it was just a process of many, many years and sort of moving through the material again and again. Um, other characters I think came to me kind of, uh, I think um, Lenny, for example, their father, I think I always really understood him quite clearly. He had kind of his full psychological profile from the first draft. Um, whereas yeah, with those sisters, I, I understood some of it, but had to, had to sort of um, go through this process of discovery. One of the things, one of the ways in which the, the girls start to, to separate is that Harriet learns how to read and write mm -hmm. um, much, much sooner than, than Josie does. And she compares the thrill of reading and writing to, to being on stage. Do, do you see that in your own life? That, I mean, you talked about how you thought you might be a writer, you might be mm -hmm. an actor, but, but do, you, do you feel a similar connection that, that, that Harriet feels about that that thrill that comes with that creation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think that kind of the the thrill of reading and writing is a more inward version of this thrill that happens when you're performing and really connecting to the performance in a meaningful way. It's this kind of electricity, this generative act, and there's just a kind of um, like glittery, magical spark of something. I mean, I guess it's just the feeling of having your imagination really activated. Um, and for Josie, that happens, you know, every time she's on stage and she um, is able to kind of, she has this presence and just, she gets something from the audience in response to her presence. Um, and then for Harriet, it's, it's something that is more inward and that happens when she's kind of, kind of going deeper into her own mind and, and thinking um, about things or writing or, or connecting to a story. And so yeah, I, I, in, my, in my life, those have been very similar kinds of um, experiences of just kind of imaginative excitement. So you, 
let's talk about Uncle Eugene for a minute. I think he's just a fascinating character. So this is, you kind of draw some implied connections between theater and at least not necessarily all religion, but but Uncle Eugene's kind of Billy Sunday-esque mm-hmm. um, style of, of religion. Um, tell us a little bit about his character and, and the real world movements on which you based um, the, what he does and the, and the church that he's involved in. Yeah, so uh, Uncle Eugene is, um, is uh, he's Harriet and Josephine's uncle. He's married to their mom's sister um, at a certain point in the novel. And he is uh, this very charismatic and successful kind of early radio preacher. And we meet him as a young man where he's just sort of developing some of these ideas about kind of connecting to, um, you know, the masses using kind of these new um, communication tools, using the radio, using film to kind of uh, evangelize. Um, and yeah, I was fascinated by, I think he's, I think he experiences a similar kind of thrill to that one that Harriet's describing. He, like he is, a, like his, he's getting something out of these moments where he's preaching. He is impressive and charismatic and he's connecting to his congregation in a way that Harriet recognizes as being similar to what she and her sister have experienced on stage. Um, so I was interested in that in the way, and I, you, religion can be, um, you know, a, a kind of performance and can kind of be a, a place where, um, where a performer might land. And, and it's uh, definitely something that I think, yeah, Eugene has in common with these members of his family who he who he uh, doesn't approve of and their their lives in the theater are um, you know problematic for him um, but yeah I was thinking about Billy Sunday I was also thinking about Norman Vincent Peale who are sort of yeah. Billy Sunday is earlier than Eugene and Norman Vincent Peale is later but just um, these kinds of people who really connected with with huge audiences of um, of listeners or um, you know people who come to a revival and it, it was really like this kind of mass message so taking kind of a religious message and then kind of expanding it so it was more um kind of broader and kind of um connected to to an audience in a a way that um you know kind of moved huge groups of people um and of course in chicago there's the moody bible institute which is an inspiration for um kind of the the organization that eugene is part of um, and that was a huge, it was one of the early kind of radio missions, these kinds of um, Christian radio stations. And um, so it's a, a kind of model for the, for the Institute where Eugene works. And they had kind of um, programming that reached huge swaths of people, but then it's also like very early in the history of radio. So there's this sort of fascinating mix of kind of the professional, the amateur. So something I read about was they were just kind of like, have to fill time so like they call it would be like six like students at the bible college and like this guy played the trumpet and this guy kind of could play a drum and they were like can you please come down to the studio and just like fill half an hour you know so it's, it's a moment that feels kind of you know exciting and new and there's this kind of potential as they're sort of like figuring out the form I'm um, similar to, to film at this moment in the novel I mean this is one of the the things that fascinates me about this period in history it's just so many of the um in ways that we make art and communicate with each other now they have their kind of very early roots in this moment like people are kind of figuring out like how we do this um and so yeah eugene is is that is doing that in the world of kind of um like radio evangelism and and 
you know, you did mention that the depression was one of the things that sank vaudeville, but certainly technology was was something else with both with sure. the radio where people could stay at home and be entertained at home and which Uncle Eugene is a part of. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, motion pictures, yep. which so many of those vaudeville houses got turned into movie houses yeah. uh, where, where mm -hmm. Josie goes into that. So, yeah, can you, can you talk a little bit about sort of the role of, of technology and kind of dooming the world that Harriet lives in? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, it, and then it's ultimately television that's sort of the true death knell of vaudeville, because there you have, you have now that variety entertainment all in one box and you can move through the channels. Um, so yeah, that it's, it's, it's a moment in, in theater history and it definitely had kind of an endpoint. And I, I, I think maybe Josie understood that in a way that the rest of her family didn't, like it was sort of like now or never, like I need to to move on to the next thing. And that kind of vision was part of what makes her um, able to be successful. And um, she has this drive and a kind of savvy that gets her onto, onto Hollywood and onto the next thing. Um, but yeah, the world was kind of um, falling out from underneath them already, um, yeah. So the narrative alternates between this story that we've been talking about, the story of, of Harriet and Josie and vaudeville and and Uncle Eugene, and then the backstories of Harriet and Josie's parents, mm -hmm. which to me feel almost like this, this secret history. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm hearing details that maybe Harriet doesn't know about, about her own parents, mm -hmm. or at least didn't know when she was, when she was a child. Yes. Do you, is there something universal at work here? Is this notion that on some level, at least, everybody's parents has a, have a secret history that, that the children will never really quite know about? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, and then I think in every family, there's a child that wants to understand. There's a child who becomes kind of the keeper of the stories. And maybe that means they're the one doing like ancestry.com and like co collecting the family documents or whatever. But I, I think just the act of imagining your parents' lives is a, a, a character trait in, in children and, you know, one child in the kind of constellation of the, the family. And so I think, yeah, I, I do imagine those sections as being Harriet's best attempt to understand who these people were. And she understands that um, she and her sister have been shaped by not just, you know, the story that they all experienced together, but by the story that sort of came before and their lives are a consequence of their parents' lives and in particular the events in their parents' lives that she narrates in these sections. Um, and I, I yes, I, I was very conscious of um, the fact that that isn't simply a recording of history, but it's a work of imagination on Harriet's part. And that act of imagination is a way of loving her parents who have been complicated figures in her life <laughs> and have in various ways um, not been up to the task of parenting. And I think her ability or her decision to kind of um, look at them and try to know them is a, a way of kind of being in relationship with them and, and loving them um, that attempt to understand. Um, so, you know, imagining their lives is a way of um, knowing them, you know. Um, so the, the novel, we move along and then all of a sudden it says part two. And <laughs> I, I was really struck by how when it, we started part two, we have these two timelines and things are going really well in one of the timelines and things are going quite poorly in the other one of the timelines. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'm curious, is that a, 
is that something that, that you planned? And what do you, what do you accomplish with that either balance or imbalance, whatever you want to call it by having, by having the, you know, one of them be at sort of a high point and one of them at a low point. That's an interesting observation. I hadn't noticed that about how those uh, aspects of the story were sort of allocated. I, I, um, I think that um, thinking about kind of the structure of the novel and where those parent sections had to live in relation to the main narrative was one of the toughest problems to solve. And um, for me, it was, I was often thinking about kind of um, the way the novel was moving emotionally. So maybe this is actually connected to what you're describing, even if it's not how I would have said it to myself at the time, but I was thinking of, um, you know, in each, in each kind of storyline, there's sort of a, a series of events unfolding, and then there are these kind of movements in, in character and relationships and kind of, uh, kind of an emotional arc that these characters are going through and sort of um, thinking about where that emotional momentum was and um, how, how these characters were um, kind of moving emotionally through those moments and, and how the, the past story was kind of resonating against the present story. I guess those were the sorts of things I was thinking about as I tried to, to solve that puzzle. Yeah. yeah. I, I was talking to Wiley Cash not long ago and he told me he uses flashbacks to control pacing. And I feel like mm. you use um, descriptive passages to do the same thing, to fill, to fill moments when there needs to be a pause in the action. Mm. How, how do you, how do you recognize those moments? Those moments when when a reader needs to stop back and, and catch their breath and you put in these really beautiful descriptive passages, whether it's of you know a street in Chicago or a piece of scenery or or whatever. Mm. I often think of description as carrying emotional weight. Mm -hmm. And so moments of richer description for me are moments where something is happening emotionally that that requires kind of a, a more attention. So maybe the, the language becomes richer because there's something of greater emotional intensity happening, or we we linger in a moment of description because we need to be with this feeling for an extra beat in order to really um, feel it. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I guess for me, a, a lot of these choices that I'm sort of thinking about, um, the emotional experience of the character whose point of view is kind of in control at that moment. I mean, the way, the way like we experience life when you're in a, when you're having kind of an emotionally intense experience and things sort of slow down and the world seems extra saturated. And like, there's sometimes moments in life where it's like, okay, I'm really gonna, like I'm, I feel myself kind of collecting every detail. Like I become like this camera and I, it's, it's like, this is important, this thing that's happening. Um, and I can't, articulate that to myself in those words. It's not like an intellectual experience, but it's just this kind of um, an experience of, of maybe like uh, my attention become like the, if I have like a, like a, the lens widens or something happens, that's not the right, it's just like a cam, what's the camera thing that lets in light? What is that? The iris. Of a cam the iris, yeah, yeah, whatever it is, like it's, there's a, it, a widening so that yeah. the thing yeah. becomes I'm, I'm not, yeah, there's an, an intensification of the experience and you 
then carry more of that moment with you going forward. I guess the way that happens for me in writing is I do um, slow down and maybe describe more as, as the characters in that kind of moment. There's one point in which Maud says to Lenny, referring to the theater, and I'm sure all of us who've been in the theater have had somebody say this to us at some point. She says, couldn't you find some other way to be happy? <laughs> uh, do, you, do you see this as a novel about the search for happiness? Hmm, I, that's a good question. I, I don't know that any of these characters finds happiness, so it would be an unsatisfying search of it is. Maybe it's a, it's a, a search for authenticity or like um, a search for a, a kind of a life that feels true, um, which will then include some happiness, but will also include all the other stuff as well. Um, and I, I mean, maybe, yeah, like these characters are kind of um, trapped in the theater. Like theater is this kind of uh, problem in all of their lives, even as it's the thing that gives, you know, many of them meaning. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely at tension with that goal of kind of living a true and good life, whatever that, that looks like for, for most of them. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them with just a few words, but okay. hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Hmm, probably puppet. Mm -hmm. I love puppets. I'm always looking for an excuse to write about puppets. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Um, okay, this is a me problem. No one else is wrong about this, but it's it's forked, uses a verb to describe piercing food with a fork. I don't know why, it just drives me bonkers. Forked. Where's your favorite place to write? Um, it's in a, a coffee shop. Where could you never write? I can't write in my own house when everyone is there. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, I'm sure my copy editor would say it's one involving commas. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so some, some, yeah, my comma usage can be idiosyncratic. What was the first book you remember reading? Um, hmm. I think the first one I, I remember reading very clearly is like an Amelia Bedelia book. What are you reading now? I'm reading Maggie Shipstead's book, Astonish Me, which is great. What book would you like to have written? Um, oh, that's a great question. Um, maybe like Moby Dick. Is that too, is that too wild? Oh, yeah, great. Moby Dick. I'll go for it. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Um, maybe like, like a really sharp satire. Mm -hmm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, maybe that I... I wrote something that feels true to them. This has been yeah. Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Elizabeth Weiss, whose novel Sister Sweet is available wherever books are sold. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. 
Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro.fm supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'll be taking a holiday break for the next month or so, but I'll be back in the new year with all new episodes. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (music) 